This series is entitled, Ten Scriptural Convictions, by Pastor Joe Webb. This is conviction number one, unit one. Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we declare that the Word of God is true, it's eternal, it changes not. We desire that our hearts be in line with it because it is the purpose of your purpose for us that we serve you, that we live for you, that we bring honor and glory to you, that others can see Jesus Christ in us. And I ask that you will minister by your Holy Spirit to us today to where we'll never be the same as we hear God's word. There'll be another area of our life committed, yielded, changed as an instrument and a tool to be used by thee. We love you, Father, and thank you for the privilege of ours as a people to have the Word of God and to be able to study the Word of God and to preach the Word of God and to teach it and see people saved and sanctified and yielded completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're trusting you now to lead us and direct us in this hour. Let the words of God be very meaningful to us. Let the Spirit of God take the Word and burn it into our hearts and cause us to see and understand new principles from your Word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This morning I want to share with you another, what will probably become, a series, and I'm going to entitle it, It's Time to Take Sides. It's Time to Take Sides, and I'm going to just read one verse for you, and that is found in Matthew, the 12th chapter, and the 30th verse. Very short, concise verse. Jesus had just ministered to a person that had a been uh, demonized, the word in verse 22 says possessed with the devil, the Greek word being demonized, uh, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And um, the Pharisees came and said, well, I know how he's doing that. He's doing that by the power of Beelzebub, the power of the devil. And of course, Jesus said in some of the other books that if you do that, if you say that, you will not be forgiven in this life or the life to come to call the work of the Holy Spirit the work of the devil. You can blaspheme the Father, you can blaspheme the Son, and you'll be forgiven in this life and the life to come. But if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, you'll not be forgiven in this life nor in the life to come. But when he finished talking about the fact that he had to bind the strong man before he could enter into his house and take him captive or to, to uh, break into his home and uh, spoil his goods, the next verse is very, very pungent, very meaningful. Place here what seems like in a very unusual place, but it's, it's something that Jesus wanted to declare, I believe, to Pharisees and all others and make it very clear once and for all because even though it sounds stern and severe, it's true. Verse 30, He that is not with me is what? Against me. And he that gathereth not with me gathereth abroad. Now may I just stop and tell you that Again, when I read the scriptures, I cannot go along with all the sloppy agape that we see going on in many churches today. Love for the sake of loving. Accept and receive anybody and everybody that casts a shadow in the door if they just say, I believe. Jesus said there's more to look for than this, and I'm not trying to be divisive. I'm trying to be scriptural. Jesus said there's more to being what I want you to be than just saying I believe or I don't believe or I, can, I have a certain gift. He said if you're with me, you're with me. If you're against me, you're against me. And there's going to be two different things. He that is with me is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. 
It's important for us to see these things because last week, as you know, the Lord laid it on my heart to speak to you about crumb Christians. And I said that the church today is under the table, the table of the world, and we're just accepting any crumb or any scrap of food they throw to us, thankful that they're just tolerating us anymore, it seems like. And God doesn't want us to stay under the table. He wants us to come out from under the table and to stand and quit like men and be what God wants us to be. And my proposition to you is this. If we're going to do that as a church, if we're going to come out from under the table and stand as the New Testament church stood in the book of Acts and see the power of God upon us as it was in the New Testament, then we're going to have to establish some scriptural convictions in our lives that no one will be able to shake. We're going to have to say, I'm for him, I'm gathering together, I'm with Jesus Christ, I'm on his side. You can go all the way through Scripture and you'll find out that that choice had to be made over and over and over again. When the nations, the nation of Israel would get, uh, get away from God, God would raise someone up and he'd come and say, all right, it's time to choose. Who are you going to serve? Black and white. The old prophets, you know. There is no gray. It's either black or white. This side of the fence, get on one side of the fence or the other. No mugwumps here. And Jesus in the New Testament said the same thing. Paul in the New Testament said the same thing. It's time to take sides. It's time to choose. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter? 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter. I want to read a couple of verses to you and show you in just a couple of verses how uh, Paul was talking about this very thing of conviction. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. <clears throat> Let's go down through those very quickly, and I, I want to point out five points. Number one, watch ye. In other words, you saying to the believers of that day, be alert to spiritual danger. Do you know something? There are many Christians today that don't have the foggiest people, excuse me, there are many people who profess to be Christians today who don't seem to have the foggiest idea of what a spiritual danger is. Many parents today that have no awareness whatsoever of, to the fact that their children are getting into spiritual danger. What? They let them go here, go there, see this, listen to that, and all. No sense of spiritual danger whatsoever. And Paul says, watch ye, be careful of spiritual danger. Second, be true to God's standards. Stand fast in the faith. Be true to God's standards. This is difficult for many people today in the church because they don't know what God's standards are. They're not being preached and they're not being taught. And the minute they are taught, some people say, oh, that's legalism. That's bondage. Paul says, watch. Stand you fast in the faith. Be true to God's standards. Third, be a man. Quit you like men. Fourth, be strong. Fifth, be loving and kind in all that you do. Now, I know there's times when I preach very, what sounds to be very harsh. But I want you to understand that harshness does not mean that it is not loving. There have been times in my experience as a father that I've seen an emergency situation coming up and I've had to speak very suddenly, very harshly to my children. Don't touch that. Now, that sounds harsh. But if they're reaching for an electrical cord or starting to, I can remember one time when Jody or Jeff, I can't remember which one it was, picked up an electrical cord and got it in their mouth and were just ready to bite down. I said, no, don't bite that. They about jumped out of the skin through the wire in the air and started crying and screaming. Beverly came in to find out what was wrong. 
You say, well, don't. You shouldn't have done that. You're just scared to have to. I'd rather have scare half to death than to have her get burned to death. I've been in the hospital where babies have had their mouths or teeth in their mouth burned right out, just a hole right in their mouth. And there needs to be times when as Christians we have to know what spiritual dangers are, be alert to what God's standards are, and be very, very stern yet with love. Well, let me tell you something. It's not going to happen unless we are established in biblical, scriptural convictions as to what the Word of God tells us our standard ought to be. I'm not talking about preferences. I looked up the difference of preference and uh, convictions because Bill Gothard had a lot to say about this, and some of the material I'm going to be sharing with you, much of it is going to be from Bill Gothard's seminar. The basic points, and then I'm going to elaborate on them because I think that what he is, what God has shown him here is very, very important for us to understand as believers. I looked in the dictionary, and I found out that a preference means preferring one thing over another or selecting one thing from another. And you know that's the way many, many people who call themselves Christians are today. When they come into church, they say, that is my, now this is exactly the way they said it to me, so I'm not putting words in their mouth, this is my cafeteria. I come and accept what I like, and if I don't like it, I just turn it aside. If it sounds good to me, I receive it. If I don't like it, I just set it aside. I think, glory to God. We're kings unto ourselves. The Lord has placed within the body those that are to teach and to lead and to instruct and edify and build up and strengthen the body and to cause them to be able to do what Paul said to those that were under him. He said, now the things that I have taught, the things that I have said, the things you've seen me do, the things that I believe and I've shared with you, go do the same thing. And I hear Timothy say, well, Paul, I'm going to do this, this, this. But you know, I don't really get turned on by this thing over here of yours. I don't think I'll do that. You see, Paul, I'm sitting here in a cafeteria, and I'm going to accept what I want to accept, and I'm going to reject what I don't want to accept, and I'll do my own thing. Now, as beautiful as that may sound in our days, in our present-day philosophy and theories, that is rebellion. And it's an area that God has to deal with. No person can submit to biblical teaching as long as they're being constantly driven by a spirit of anti-submissiveness or rebellion. And the Word of God does not say to come to church and to pick and choose what we want to hear. If we are coming to hear a shepherd preach God's Word and it's our shepherd, we better hear God's Word and go home and unless, not hear me, unless we, from the Scriptures, can prove him wrong and come back to him and say, Brother, I I'm bringing another brother with me. We want to show you from the Scripture we feel that this is a problem. If that's not the case, then I say with you what the Apostle Paul says, the thing that I say and teach and walk, do it. Follow after me as I follow Christ. If I don't follow Christ, quit it. But as long as I'm following Christ and I'm trying to live according as God's Word says, follow me as your shepherd. Hello? I'm not talking about... The, uh, let me tell you why, why I'm saying all this. Just having preferences is not going to establish you. It's not going to get you out from the, under the table... Until the day comes that you know that you have biblical convictions, you will never stand on your own two feet. You're going to be whipped back and forth by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Now, I say that doesn't make any difference how many of the gifts of the Spirit you and I may flow in. You know, God didn't send the Holy Spirit just for us to have gifts to flow in. Now, don't misunderstand me. I thank God for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But there are many people who have the gifts of the Holy Spirit that don't know anything about submission and walking in the Spirit and allowing the power of the Spirit of God to flow through their lives to where they're fruitful. 
I see a lot of people that can jump and clap hands and sing and do all those good things but are not bearing fruit, not winning souls to Christ, not doing the thing that God sets them into this earth for. And that is to be soul winners, bringing others into the kingdom of God. They become so concerned about getting themselves established and built up in all the gifts. Now, I'll just tell you something. If you get out and start ministering the Word of God, begin to take the Word of God and share it with others and bring others to Jesus Christ, you're not going to have to worry about the Holy Spirit flowing. It will flow. He'll flow through you. He'll use you. The gifts will begin to manifest themselves as you do what God intended you to do in the first place. Thank you for that really light amen. Appreciate that. Praise the Lord. I'm talking about the fact that it's time to take sides, and that's going to take conviction. Now, I looked in the dictionary for that. Let me share with you what that says. A conviction is a state of being convinced. A state of being convinced is a conviction. It goes on to say it is a firm belief. Yes, some people, what, what do you think about it? Well, I think, as far as I know, uh, well, I think the Bible says this. I'm not sure, you know. And, and, and they say, Pastor, I don't even understand why I'm having so much trouble in my spirit. Why I just can't seem to get established in the Word of God. They don't have convictions. They're not established. They don't have a firm belief. It means certainty, assurance. It means the ability to make independent decisions or judgments based upon the Word of God for Christians. That's what a conviction is. The ability to make independent decisions or judgments. You ever seen some people? You know, they get some real caricatures from time to time on television. They'll get some of these half-wits and they play their parts fantastically, but they're, they're the type of person you come up to them and say, uh, isn't that a beautiful black wall? Oh, my, that's a beautiful, I just love that black wall. And uh, you say, you know, that looks black, but actually it's white. Well, you're right. You know what? It looks black, but actually it's, I imagine it is white. And they'll go through the whole program like that, back and forth, flip, flop. And it'd almost be humorous if it weren't for the fact that many, many times I see that happening right in the church. I believe this. Do you really believe that? Oh, yes. Well, 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 what about this particular? What in a situation like this? Well, in a situation like that, we would have to reevaluate it. That's not a conviction. And again, I say we're talking about getting out from under the table. It's talking about taking sides. And you and I will never be able to take sides and stand as God wants us to stand as his church until we are rooted and grounded in basic convictions. I'm talking about scriptural convictions. What is a scriptural conviction? A scriptural conviction is a, or I can say scriptural conviction or principle. I'll say conviction. A scriptural conviction is a principle which we purpose to follow whatever the cost. I believe the word of God says this. I cannot find anything contrary to this truth in the word of God. Inasmuch as I cannot find anything contrary to it, and I know the word of God is eternal, I know it is like silver seven times refined, I know that it is God-breathed, I know that it is established forever, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, based upon that conviction, I will stand on this biblical principle. I believe that I should never lie. And yet there are many people that say that, they believe that, but they find a lie to be an ever-present help in the time of need. Either in the form of exaggeration, or diminishing the importance of something, or not telling the whole truth, or trying to hide something in their income tax return, 
But if you were to ask him, do you believe that lying is wrong? Absolutely, lying is wrong. See, now that's not a condition, that's a preference. It's a very present help in the time of need. Whenever it's beneficial for us not to lie, we don't. Whenever it isn't beneficial for us not to lie, we go ahead and lie. Whenever we want to establish scriptural principles, though, I want to tell you that you must take very, very much care in establishing it. So that once it's established, you don't have to go back and check the roots and make sure it's all right. Now, I know that some time ago, my wife has a, has a, a great love for, for trees. And, and uh, uh, she ordered some trees from the nursery somewhere in the United States. I don't even know where it was from now. But uh, she announced to me that we are going to have some beautiful fruit trees. And I said, we are, huh? So I said, when did you order them? Oh, I ordered them several months ago. I said, they're kind of slow in delivering them. I said, she said, no. They don't deliver them to you until it's the right season for you to plant them. They, they know if they send them to some people, they'd go out and stick them on the ground with snow on the ground, you know. So they send them at the right time. They're very careful. Now, they, another thing you have to be careful of when you're selecting trees, I've been told in reading these books, is that you, you have to know that you're getting the right strain of tree. We've got two pear trees. The next fall, maybe I'm going to have some partridges out in front of my yard. I don't know. We've got two pear trees right out in front of our kitchen window, out, out from our kitchen window. We have a, a peach tree over beyond, by the garage. We have two apple trees out by one of the sprinkler systems. Now, you just can't get just any apple tree that you want. You have to get a certain apple, that will tree that will grow in Florida. You have to be careful where you plant it. I planted one up close to our house, a pear tree, and it's growing beautifully. The leaves are just doing well. The other one out a little further, I planted it over where we had ground up an old pine stump. And I'm finding out that that's not the best soil to plant it in. And I, I've been feeding it and watering it and feeding it and watering it. And it just looks kind of sickly coming up. Now, the peach tree was doing just fantastically. It's growing by leaps and bounds all, all winter through the winter. And then one day we thought it was too dry, so Jeffrey and I went out and put the hose next to the tree, and we forgot to turn it off overnight. Next morning, Jeffrey walked out there, got about 10 feet from the tree, and started going flush, flush, flush. And, and I said, well, I think you've got enough water. It did. It had too much water. The leaves started turning yellow and falling off of it. There's so many things you have to think about. When you prune the tree, they tell you to watch on the branch to see if there's a bud that's sticking up, not sticking down, sticking up and cut it off just beyond that little bud. A lot of things you have to think about, but if you'll do all those things, when it comes up, it'll be just beautiful and solid and firm. And now I've got some little orange tree, one, one navel orange tree and one grapefruit tree I planted about five years ago, and I had to be so careful in planting it and taking care of it all the time. Now I just let the thing grow like topsy. It's been pretty well taken care of up till now. See, so now it's going to be established and go its own way. You say, well, why do you say all those things? Because when we establish a biblical principle, we have to make sure we're not getting some the wrong truth mixed in with the right truth. That's why I believe that when we establish our Christian principles, it may, they must be established upon Bible reading, careful Bible reading, not taking out a proof text, but putting all the scripture verses together as much as possible. You say, Brother Webb, I can't do that. Well, new Christians aren't expected to do that. That's why the Lord places you within the body, where he places those that are to build you up and edify and to strengthen you, and they'll help you establish biblical conviction. Now again, let me say, if you can't trust the shepherd, if you can't trust the teacher, then you don't belong there. Now that's just as common, just as sensible as, I can't think of how I can say anything more sensible than that. Now you'll find a lot of people, that's where churches have difficulty. I know of churches that have split after split after split, problem after problem, and the reason is, they don't recognize the shepherd. 
you got a bunch of billy goats trying to run a, a, a body. And that's not scriptural. So you need to go, where do I go if I get fed? Where can I go and trust someone to feed me on the Word of God? I've got to look at their life. I've got to look at their practice. I've got to look at their ministry. And if I can trust them and believe that they're walking with the Lord, I'll follow them as they follow Christ. Then it's going to take prayer. Let me assure you, as a new Christian, there are many, many times when I had real difficulty trying to find out what the Lord was trying to say to me from His Word, and the Lord would lead me into fasting and praying. Nobody ever told me much about it, but I saw it in the Scripture, and I heard a couple of men speak on their, their experiences of fasting. And I'll tell you, there have been times in my ministry, and there will be in the days ahead too, times in my ministry when God will just call me to a fasting time. A time when I, I just get away from the food, get away from the table, and spend that time in prayer, seeking God's face. And let me tell you something, you do it, you deny this old body something from time to time, and God will begin to open the secrets of his word to you. Now, if you don't understand something, you can't see something from the scriptures, just say, Lord, I'm just going to quit eating for a few days, and I'm going to seek your face. Drink some water, drink some fluids, but I'm not going to eat for a few days. I'm going to spend that time that I would normally be eating, I'm going to spend that time in prayer and seeking your face. And I'm going to ask you to show me something that I need to see here. It's a good way to establish some good basic convictions from the scriptures. And then the third thing is to be under the preaching, godly preaching of the word. Now by that, I, again, I say it's very, very important that you get under teaching and preaching where it is in accordance with 1 Timothy. I say that only because I realize that because I'm a pastor, I have a responsibility. Because Ed is a teacher, he has a responsibility. Because anyone else here that's a teacher, they have a responsibility. The Word of God says when they come into that position of authority, it's because, first of all, their lives have lined up with the Word of God. And again, I say, don't blame leadership if you're not in leadership. Leadership desires other leadership. There are requirements that are set up in the Word of God, not by, the, not by those in authority, but by the Word of God that establishes who can be in authority. Down through my years of ministry, I've seen lots and lots of people who want to be in authority in the worst way, but they're going at it in the wrong way. If they want to get in authority, go to the Word. What does the Word say has to come about in their lives? Go and see to it that those things are established in their lives. And then say, Lord, I'm going to wait on you now. If my life is what it ought to be, then I know that you bring me into leadership. Leadership is never a thing of grabbing somebody by the hair and pulling them up into that position, nor is it climbing up there themselves, but it is rather humbling themselves before God, coming into a place of total obedience before God, and then expecting God to raise you up. Hello? When biblical principles are properly constructed and established through study and prayer and teaching, then I believe with all my heart a Christian conviction will have these points. I just wrote them on here so that you can top them down. A Christian conviction, first of all, must be seen in your daily living. I'm not talking about a preference now. I'm talking about a conviction. If you and I have a conviction, everybody around us will know it. Not a hope-so or think-so idea at all. Second, if you and I have a scriptural conviction, it will not change. Now, it may be altered from time to time, a little bit, when we find new truths in the Scripture. Third, it must be consistent. What do I mean? Consistent with the Word, but it must be consistent with our walk every day. 
for? It must be scripture. Let me give you just a little example. Daniel was in captivity. And he was one of the top kings, princes of the, uh, of the nation. And Daniel knew that the word of God says that he was to seek the Lord God, worship the Lord God. And so every day Daniel had established a conviction that he should pray three times a day to the Lord. It worked out beautifully because God gave him wisdom, God gave him insight, God gave him understanding, and he became one of the wisest leaders there, and they put him over all other leaders. And those who were not believers got very upset with Daniel, and they thought, how can we catch him up? They checked out all of his book work, they checked out all of his jobs, they checked out all of his responsibilities, they came back scratching their head, and they said, we can't touch that guy. He is as clean as a hound's teeth. How are we going to get him? Somebody says, I know what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to get him somewhere in his religious conviction. Well, yeah, hey, do you know he opens his window up there to the east, prays towards Jerusalem three times a day? Hey, that's right. I'll tell you what, let's go to Darius. Let's go to the king and tell him, look, let's make a law that nobody is allowed for the next 30 days to pray to anybody, seek advice from anybody, or worship anyone for the next 30 days. If they do, they'll be thrown to the lion. Oh, king, you're so great. We think that no one should go to anyone but you for advice for 30 days. King, if they understood how wise you are, how understanding you are, how much you comprehend problems. They don't need to go into anyone else. We, and he just built him up, and Darius's head got bigger and bigger and bigger. Finally, he said, Brethren, I think you're right. You know, this, these people really need to know how smart I am. And he signed it into law that anybody would seek anyone else or worship anyone else for 30 days. They didn't tell him about Daniel. If they'd have said Daniel, he'd have stopped it in a minute because he loved Daniel. So the edict was brought forth, and they came to Daniel and said, Daniel, do you know what the king just signed? What's that? He just signed a rule that says that no one can pray to anyone, can speak after anyone, can worship anyone but him for the next 30 days. If they do, they go to the lion. David says, boy, I'm glad you told me. I was just about ready to go to prayer. Thank God I didn't do that. I could have really been in trouble. <laughs> oh, boy. Lord, we'll just knock it off for 30 days. You know what I mean? No. No, you see, Daniel had a conviction. And if he has a conviction, it doesn't change. If he has a conviction, it's consistent. He has a conviction, it's scriptural. Word of God says, the next day they were standing right outside saying, let's see what happens, and the windows opened. There was Daniel praying again. They ran back to the king and said, king, he did it. You know this guy Daniel was right under you? He was up there praying to God toward, toward Jerusalem. We told him he wasn't supposed to do it. We told him what would happen to him if he did it. He did it. What are you going to do? The king says, the laws of the Medes and Persians are without. You can't stop them. You can't change them. You can't alter them. And they said the king hated himself for having done that thing realizing that he had been hoodwinked by the other men. So they brought Daniel down gleefully. They threw him into the lion's den. And they just chewed him up. They got lockjaw, didn't they? Huh? God gave the lions lockjaw. The word of God says Darius couldn't sleep all night. He jumped up the next morning early, went and pulled back the stone and said, Oh, Daniel, are you left? Is there anything down there at all? And he said, don't worry about a king. The Lord just told, put them all to sleep and gave them lost jaw. I'm right. I'm just all right. He hoisted him up out of there. And when he realized the ulterior motive of those that had come against Daniel, they had them and their families cast to the lions. And the scripture says the lions were so hungry by that time that they literally leaped in the air and caught them as they were falling down and tore them to shreds. Now, I'm, it's beautiful to have that kind of an ending to it. It doesn't always have that kind of an ending. If you don't believe me, you can talk to Stephen when you get to heaven. But what I'm saying is that when God puts a conviction upon us, 
it should be seen in our daily living. It should not change just because circumstances change. It should be consistent. And it should be scriptural. You know, I could, I could spend a lot of time. No, I couldn't spend a lot of time right now as I look at my watch. But uh, let me just show you some convictions we're supposed to have as Christians. The Word of God says, Husbands, what? Love your wives. That should be a conviction. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. Amen, Brother Webb. I believe that. About time she spends too much money, or she doesn't get everything done we think she ought to get done, or, or she says something when she isn't supposed to say something. Why don't you? You know, when we roar at them, we get out somewhere all alone with them, I mean, out in public with them, and all of a sudden we act like they don't exist. Why, you dummy, what did you do with the money this week? You know. But what's our conviction? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave it for him. It's not a conviction, it's preference. Oh, 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 oh. Let's try that again. Oh boy, that's weak, fellas. That's a conviction. Is that scriptural? I was going to get closer. Is that scriptural? Husbands love your wives. All right, should that be a conviction? It doesn't mean love your wives when it's convenient, does it? It doesn't mean love your wives when they love you, when they do everything you tell them to do. It doesn't mean love your wives when they get your they, uh, pickup truck all loaded with gas and your guns and shells all sitting in the back front seat so you you jump in the car and go when you get home from work. That isn't what it means, is it? It means husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Woo! See, I'm stepping right out into the fire, aren't I, when I'm talking about conviction. Take it easy, man. Wives, well. What? Wives, oh. What's that word, O-B-E-Y? Submit to your husbands in all things. Oh, that's a preference, Brother Webb. See, women have the right to have preferences instead of commitment. No, uh-uh. Did you want to talk about, do you want to know something? Just that very thing I'm talking about right now. That's why the world's going to hell. We take what we like as a conviction and we put aside in our cafeteria-style Christianity and, and set aside what we don't want to hear. Husbands, love your wife. Lord, I will if she'll behave herself. No, love your wife, even if Christ loves you. While you're yet in your sins, Christ died for the ungodly, didn't he? He didn't love me when I loved him. He loved me before I loved him. Even if Christ loved the church. Do you really love your wife? I don't mean from here. I mean, do you show you she loves the wife? I think my wife sometimes thinks I pester her half to death, telling her I love her. Sometimes she'll say, if you love me, put some wood in this firebox, you know, that sort of thing, too. Show it. It's nice to say, but do it, you know. Do we really love our wives? Men, let's get this conviction down in your heart. If you, if, you, if you don't have that as conviction yet, get into the Word and see what it says and get it down in your heart. You know why? Because I've said it before and I'll say it again. This church will never be any stronger than your home. This church is just made up of home. Well, I never knew that the Lord's going to give me one that this is that's this stubborn. Maybe it's not stubbornness. Maybe she can't trust you. But that's no excuse for her not to submit and obey you. She can turn you over to the Lord. 
And I'll tell you, if you've never had your britches dusted, he knows how to do it. He knows just exactly how to do it. Isn't it great, young people? Huh? We're getting mom and dad, aren't we? Huh? Children! Oh, what? What? You said it. Children, obey your parents. Ooh! Well, if those parents of mine would get in line, I might obey them a little bit more. If they'd tell me what I like to hear and let me do what I want to do, I might obey them. That isn't what the Word of God says. Children, obey your parents, so this is good. Now, young people, let me ask you something. Is that a conviction with you? Or is that a preference? Again, I say, you're not going to get out from under the table. You'll never get anywhere with God if, if you don't begin to walk in biblical principles and make them your conviction. I'm not going to obey my parents because I want to. I'm going to obey them because God told me to. If my parents tell me something that's absolutely contrary to what I want to do, I will submit to them and be obedient to them, knowing that that's pleasing to the Lord. If I'm disobedient to them, then God, in, his old, in the Old Testament, said that was a capital punishment. That's how much he hated it. That's what he said. you got a rebellious child? Today we've got a lot of kids going out and getting stoned. God says, I'll take care of that. You bring them out to the gates and we'll stone them. They understood what getting stoned really was back there if they were rebellious. God hates, hear me now, God hates rebellious Rebellion in children. He doesn't hate the child, but he hates rebellion. Because he knows rebellion will destroy them. Young people, make it a conviction of your heart. I will obey my parents. Husbands, make it a conviction of your heart. I will, no matter what, I'll love my wife. He says, I don't feel like it. Love has nothing, feelings has nothing to do with love. Do you hear me? Feelings have nothing to do with love. You either choose to or not to. And basically, most of the time, the reason why we choose not to is because they don't let us have our way. Mom always let me have my way. Why don't you? Come on now, fellas. I'm getting hard on you, but that's the truth. Most of the time, when we, don't, when we, when we get a little bit upset with our wives, it's because they don't let us do what we want to do. Or they'll stop us when we're doing something they don't think is right. Try to stop it. I'm talking about conviction. They're not easy, are they? You see, I hit right down where the old rubber meets the road. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Wives, obey, submit to your husbands in most things. Oh, that's right. I was just taking the new translation. In, most, in all things. Fit into their plans. They say, you know something? It's an interesting thing how men memorize those verses. Wives, submit. Honey, you, you've got to submit to me. So the word says, you've got to do it. You will obey me because the Bible says so. And the wife goes around with a lot of guilt. And that's not the basis upon which it's set. Now, I'll admit that that's what the wife is supposed to do. And if she doesn't do it, she's in disobedience. But you cannot make anyone submit Oh, they'll stand sit down on the outside, but they're standing up on the inside. It has to be an act of the will, an act of your own heart. I will submit to him. If he wants to mistreat me, that's between him and the Lord. And the Lord can shake the dust out of his britches, too. He can straighten him up very quickly, jerk him up short. But the other aspect of it is, husbands, if you will love your wife like you love yourself, 
She can love you. She can obey you. She can submit to you. She, she won't have to be afraid. How many of you are afraid to submit to Jesus Christ? Even though sometimes it looks like we are. I've heard people say, well, I'm afraid to do that because if I do, the Lord might call me to the mission field or into the ministry. <laughs> you don't understand biblical principles at all, do you? If God calls you in the ministry or to a missionary field or Christian work, you would be miserable anywhere else. But if you love your wife as yourself, again, I say it, you show me some fellow gets his thumb hurt or, a, you know, a sliver in his hand, and he'll come, oh, honey, will you? Oh, honey, you got something, you got, you know, pull Oh, we're so concerned about that little splinter. A wife can come in and just drop a brick on her toe and say, well, there's a pan over there, get some water, you know, stick, stick it in some Clorox, let it soak away. <laughs> Boy, there's some amens there, weren't there, huh? Another command. Bear the rod and what? Some, people, some person said to me one time, you know, I can't believe that the Word of God says we're supposed to spare the rod so the child gets spoiled. That isn't what it's saying. It's saying if you spare the rod, you will spoil the child. Therefore, the rod needs to be used with love and determination and consistency and steadfastness, faithfully. And I've heard people say, oh, yes, I believe that uh, the Word of God is true. I believe the Word of God is established forever. But I just, I just love my children too much to punish them. It's a lie out of the pit. You hate them if you don't punish them. That's what the Word says. If you don't chasten them, you hate them. If you love them, you chasten them. Every time they are disobedient to you, consistently never letting them get away with it. Now hear me, young parents with little children, right where they are right now, they will already know how to work out the odds. If you tell them, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you, and they do it, you say, now I told you if you do that again, I'm going to spank you, now don't do it again. You just lied to them. And they say, hey, I can get away with it. Be very careful. You don't lie to your children. Say one thing to them. Mean it. And when they do it, say, now let's rehearse. What did I just say to you? And what did you do? Was that disobedient? Let them answer. Yes. What did I say would happen if you did that? In other words, you're not supposed to jump on top of them with all four feet and 18 claws, you know, and a club in your hand and beat them to death and then say, now you do that again. No, you explain to them why they're being punished and in love punish them and then afterwards tell them you still love them. Every time. Now we had some parents here, I've given an illustration when we had to, I had to thank Jeffrey seven times. Every time, just say you're sorry. <laughs> Take him in the back room and I had to really thank him really well. And say, now I didn't want to do that, but you were going to go out there and you're going to tell them you're sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank him again. Took him out there and said, now tell this gentleman you're sorry for what you said. I said, excuse me, we have another meeting. Oh, I no, no, I don't want to. You're going to get it. You will tell this man you're sorry. You know, I explained seven times and finally he said, I'm sorry. Oh, not too long ago, there was a couple that had a young boy that wouldn't say he was sorry. He outstripped Jack. I think it went went for something like 24 hours or something. They, they just they said, no food until you say you're sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Came to church, couldn't have anything in the nursery. After 24 hours, he finally went, oh, sorry. And you know, it took that long to break that will. And now he's the first one to say he's sorry in the family if something goes wrong. But you know, let me tell you something. It's so much easier to obey God's word and do it back there when they're little. 
I've had parents come up to me when, when I first church out in Denver. We had some folks here there from our church in Denver. I had a parent come to me up there and say, I, my daughter, 14-year-old daughter, came up to me and slapped me and told me to stay out of the business. What can I do? I said, how old? She said, 14. I said, all you can do is pray hard or else get yourself an equalizer and begin to really lay into her. I said, the problem is you should have started way back there when she was just about as tall as a grasshopper. If you'd have taken care of that situation back there, you'd have had that problem today. But you know why parents aren't doing it? They aren't convicted. They aren't convinced that that's what the Word of God means. And it's for their good. I'm talking about conviction. One other, and then I'm going to close. The Word of God says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Now that's written to pastors, see? How many believe that? How many believe it's written to you? All right, now don't put your hand up. I don't want to embarrass you, but how many of you do it regularly? It's not a conviction. It's a preference, isn't it? Study to show yourselves approved when it's convenient. Workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see what I'm talking about? Why the church of Jesus Christ is still under the table as crumb Christians? We have never come and stood and said, this is the word of God, I will be obedient to it. It becomes my conviction. Whether I feel like it or not, starting next week, we're going to start on the ten basic convictions. Basic convictions. These are sideline convictions that I shared with you today just to show you how little we really do obey God's word. The ten basic convictions that Bill Gothard, by the way, is going to be bringing out ten men's manuals. And one of those convictions and the elaboration on each one of those convictions will be involved and being inculcated in each one of those manuals. Starting next Sunday morning, I want to start a series on the ten basic convictions that all men should teach their families to save them from the destructive forces that are coming against the home today. Now, if you're a dad, it's not optional for you to be here. If you're a dad, I want to tell you ahead of time, I'll probably be preaching it Sunday morning and Sunday night. It's not optional for you to be here. If you want to know what the basic standards are and the basic convictions are that all men should be teaching in their homes right now. You get this settled in your heart and begin to teach this and walk this out in your life at home. And let me tell you something. There won't be any power on earth holding us under the table. We'll be able to stand if God wants us to stand. We'll have convictions that will cause us to be one in the things of the Spirit. This morning I spoke on the subject, Biblical Certainties. We began with Luke, the first chapter, reading verses 1 through 4, where Luke spoke concerning the fact that he said that to Theophilus that thou mightest know the certainty of these things wherein thou hast been instructed. And for those that will be listening to the tape later on, I'm going to have to do a very quick review of what I said this morning because the tape was not turned on. And I want to bring them up to date as to where we are so we can go on with the message. And speaking of biblical certainties, I said this morning, asked this morning if we're convinced of what we believe, are we consistent with what we believe, are we communicating what we believe, and do our 
Do we have convictions or just preferences? And I said the definition of a conviction is the state of being convinced, a firm belief, a certainty, an assurance, the ability to make independent decisions and judgments, and that a biblical conviction is a basic biblical or scriptural principle which we determine to follow whatever the cost. We have to be very careful in establishing those in our lives so that we we establish proper biblical principles. And uh, we talked about the fact that to enable to make a foundation for a, a solid biblical principle, first of all, we must personally study the Word of God for ourselves, pray much about what we're reading, meditate on the Word of God, tie verses together in the Scriptures, sometimes even going to fasting and praying, and then listen to godly instruction and teaching from those God has placed in the body whose lives are consistent with what the Word of God says they ought to be in order to learn and grow and be edified in the, in the, in the Word of God. And when it's properly developed in our lives, the end result will be always, if we have proper biblical convictions, they'll be evident in our daily life. And we spoke of Daniel in chapter 16, how he had not just a preference but a conviction that he was to pray three times a day, opening the window toward the east. And when the law came that if he did that, he would have to die, he didn't change it. It wouldn't change. And that's the second thing concerning a proper conviction. It will not change regardless of man-made laws. Thirdly, that it must be consistent. Daniel continued to pray even as he did before, and the Lord delivered him from it. And we talk about different uh, convictions that you and I must establish in our lives concerning our home lives, concerning our business life, concerning our work or when we're at school. And then the fourth thing is that in order for it to be a proper biblical uh, conviction, it must be scriptural. And uh, if we'll do this, valid biblical convictions will protect us from wrong desires, from false philosophies, and from satanic temptation. Now, one of the things that we were talking about, one conviction that we wanted to talk about this morning and started talking about is that the Bible is a supernatural book unlike any other. It's the inspired word of God and the complete authority for my life. We cannot claim this only when it's convenient, but in all situations, even when it's not convenient. When the Word of God tells us something we don't want to hear, we still, if it's a conviction, it will still have the authority in our life for our lifetime. It will determine our ultimate success or our failure. We talked about how unusual the Word of God is and talked about what the Scriptures had to say about, the, the, uh, the Bible has to say about the Scriptures themselves. And I'm just going to, for the sake of the tape ministry, just read off those verses again for those of you that wrote them down this morning that I went too fast for. I won't quote the words, but it's Isaiah 34, 16, Hebrews 6, 5, Romans 1, 2, Psalm 1, 2, Daniel 10, 21, Ephesians 6, 17, Luke 11, 28, 2 Timothy 2, 15, 2 Timothy 3, 16. We went on to say how Jesus used the Scripture, first of all, to clinch arguments when he was talking with the Pharisees. When he rebuffed Satan, he would say, it is written, not what I think, but it is written. And then when he was, they were coming to ask him about himself, he told them to search the Scriptures, for in them they do testify of him. And then to impart life, when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then Paul the Apostle and David both emphasized the authenticity and the authority of the Word of God. Now, the proof of the supernaturalness 
of the word of God, I said, is evidenced by prophecy. I want to make that very clear. There's not another religious book on earth that dares to prophesy future events. Every other religious book in the world has nothing to say concerning the future. And we read this morning concerning Deuteronomy 18.22, over 2,000 prophecies from the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy 18.22, God is speaking. He said, Hereby you will know that a prophet has come from me if the things which he foretells come to pass. If they don't come to pass, then they're not of God. Secondly, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things, times, things that are not yet done. Now, I gave four scripture prophecies this morning from the Old Testament. Those four prophecies, first of all, was Micah, concerning but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, not Bethlehem Zebulun, but Bethlehem Ephrata, very specific. Though you be little among the thousands of Judah, and it talks about the birth of Christ. Then in Daniel, the ninth chapter, beginning with, uh, and this was written, by the way, the one Michael was written in, uh, in 710 B.C. approximately, 710 years before Christ ever came. Daniel 9, 24, 534 B.C. spoke of the 70-week vision of Daniel. And in the 70-week vision of Daniel, it talked about that uh, 70 weeks had to do with the nation of Israel, God's dealing with the nation of Israel, and the beginning of that 70-week or 490-year period would start when the order went forth to rebuild Jerusalem, and it would stop when the Messiah was cut off. And those that have worked on the Hebrew calendar and worked out the dates, and I could speak on that for several hours because of all the studies that have been done, uh, the dating and the timing is absolutely precise when from the going forth of that edict Till the, when Jesus was baptized and commissioned into the ministry was exactly 69 weeks. The last week will be the week of tribulation period, the great tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble, which is split into three and a half and three and a half years when God again will be dealing with the nation of Israel. Now, went on then to Isaiah where it talks about prophesying the suffering of Christ, the one that was to come. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 9, I did not read that this morning to you, but I think it'd probably be well to read it to you tonight. Isaiah 53, 5 through 9. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah didn't even know of whom he was speaking. He had no idea who he was talking about here. He went on and said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He brought, is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearer, her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and he, was ma- and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. It said, first of all, he was going to be receive stripes. Then it said there was going to, he was going to uh, go to the grave with the wicked and that he would be buried with the rich. And he was put in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. All these things were prophesied hundreds of years before Christ came. And then it talks about the time of this. And it said that he would be hanged on a tree. And the New Testament comes back to say that Christ became a curse for us. Because any man that's hanged on a tree, the Old Testament says, is a curse of God. In Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, it talks about if a man's hung on a tree. And in Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, it reiterates 
the fact that Christ became a curse for us that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Now, when he talked about Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, you have to understand the practice or the, the, the law that was established concerning the Lamb of God or the Paschal Lamb that God told the children of Israel to kill and eat during the Passover. One of the rules that was there is that not a bone of it should be broken. No bone should be broken. And uh, in, in, Revel- in Exodus, the 12th chapter, and verse 46, he said, In one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. And then John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This is God's Lamb. This is that Paschal Lamb that God has sent now, the one that was promised. And in John 19, 31 through 36, we read about Christ's death, how they did not break his legs because he was already dead, and how he was pierced. And it says in Zechariah, the 12th chapter, the 10th verse, that was written in 487 B.C., and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And in Psalm 22:16, they pierced my hands and my feet. And then in verse 37 of John 19, it says, And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now that's how far we went this morning. And we said, uh, So what? What's so great about that? Well, it's almost impossible for the natural person to comprehend the miraculous that's involved in prophecies that have been made. You say, well, I'm not too impressed with prophecies. We've got prophets all over the place today that are prophesying. Yes, we really do. It's really interesting if you go back and read uh, in the National Enquirer and the National Examiner in 1990, uh, 10 of the leading psychics prophesied concerning 1991, just one year away, what would happen in 1991. All 52 prophecies did not were not fulfilled. In 1991, they did it again. They prophesied 61 prophecies, and none of them were fulfilled. Guessing what would happen just one year away. Now, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years before these prophecies were very specific, and they did not. Gene Dixon, by the way, I don't know if you missed this or not, but Gene Dixon prophesied that World War III was going to break out in 1958. We must have missed it. Definitely, absolutely. Going. She was the woman, excuse me, she was the psychic that said that she got her vision when a snake wrapped itself around her legs and then up around her body and came up and stared into her face. And when she looked in the eyes of that serpent, she could see wisdom. And that serpent told her to look to the east, for that's where wisdom would come from. And she got these wonderful things. Oh, she, by the way, she said also in 1969, Fidel Castro would be out of government. The newspapers didn't catch that. She said also that the Soviets would be the first ones to land on the moon. When you try to compare some of these ridiculous things they prophesied and were totally off with the accuracy of God's word, it's just awe. I'm awestruck with the thing. They can predict centuries ahead and always precise and accurate and specific. Now, let me just give you a little example to see if you can see the, the difficulty of it. What if someone were to come to you and say, now what I want you to do is to think real hard and just really grit your teeth and predict the, the, the person who will become President of the United States in the year 2700. If, if the United States is still a nation. In 2700, you predict who the President's going to be. Then predict where he's going to be born. And by the way, it'll have to be some little obscure town out in Nebraska that isn't even on the map yet. Make sure it's just some little obscure place where it isn't even there yet, but predict it for 2700. 
Then predict his, the kind of work he's going to be. Is he going to be a teacher, a healer, a priest? What is he going to be? Uh, predict what he's going to be doing. And then, then predict the fact that uh, he is accused of treason. He's going to be tortured and, uh, and describe the type of torture he's going to have. Is he going to be nails in his hands and feet? Is he going to be a spear in his side? Uh, uh, specific. Be very specific about it. And then describe that he's going to die by some means that hadn't even been invented yet. If he could just do those four, it would be incredible. You know, science is getting involved in, the, uh, in proving the, the, uh, the authority of God's Word. I'm just excited about it. For example, uh, an atheist, an evolutionary atheist, wanted to find out, once and for all, settle this issue about evolution. He says, I am going to destroy the Christian faith completely. He had access to some of the most powerful computers, and he and computer analysts sat down and figured out a way to program all that's involved in the DNA as best they know how, and to find out what the probabilities of the DNA being uh, coming into being by evolutionary forces. How long would it take, and what, how, what uh, different factors would have to be brought in to make it DNA actually come to be where it is today? And the computer hummed and hummed and hummed and hummed and finally came out with the answer and said, it's totally impossible for this to have been by evolution. Oh, no matter what the period of time might be, it had to be created by a super intelligence. The computer said that. That man became a believer. Science is finding out more and more. Now remember, we only talked about four prophecies here. If you could prophesy just four things. The Old Testament has concerning Jesus Christ alone 333 prophecies, and in that it also has 456 specific details, and they were written between 400 and 1400 B.C. Now, in a book called The Case for Jesus the Messiah by Ankerberg, Welton, and Kaiser, Professor Peter Stoner Professor Emeritus of the Science Department at Westmont College wanted to find out probabilities. Now, if you're in mathematics, you understand probabilities, and I don't. But the study was, was interesting enough and brought down to where I could understand it enough that it was really exciting. He took a powerful computer and uh, took just eight of the prophecies of the Old Testament and said, what are the probabilities that these specific prophecies could all be fulfilled in the life of one person in one lifetime? Well, they came back and said there was one in ten to the, I believe it yet, to the seventeenth power. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, if you could fill this room with silver dollars two feet deep, mark one of them, would that do it? And have a blind man walk around in here and finally reach out and pick up a... No, no, no. How about if we take a square mile and do it? Two feet deep. And put a blind man on there and have him walk back and forth that square mile, two foot deep of silver dollars, reach out and pick up the... No, that wouldn't even come to the 17th pound. How about if you take, and I wrote it down, 276,339 square miles... In other words, the whole state of Texas, two foot deep. Now watch now, you only mark one silver dollar and drop it somewhere in the state of Texas and stir it all up and then have this blind man walk back and forth and up and down day after day after day and finally stop somewhere, reach down into the pile somewhere and pull out 
and pull out that marked silver dollar? You say, absolutely impossible. They say that's the exact possibility of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one lifetime. When I read that, I thought, that's so exciting to realize the power of the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God evidenced by the prophecies. Well, he didn't stop there. He said, I wonder what would happen if this is, now remember, this is eight prophecies. Eight prophets I'll put down here, okay? Now, he said, let's, let's go a little bit further here. How about uh, 48 prophecies? Now, remember, in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ alone, there's 333, and uh, of that there's also, I think there's 450, 456 specifics. Now, we're only talking about eight prophecies. Now we're talking about 48 prophecies. What are the possibilities? Well, let's, let's not use silver dollars now. Uh, let's go, not, not even dimes. Let's, uh, let's even go below atoms. Let's go down to electrons. Anybody know the difference? I mean, electron, you know, protons and electrons are inside of an atom. They're microscopic. They're so small. You say, well, how small are they? Let me just give you an idea. If you're going to have, you take electrons, and if you would line them up side by side for one inch, one inch, side by side, and then you begin to count them, four per second, four per second. How long do you think it would take to be able to count just one inch? of electrons. Nineteen days, years, hundred and ninety years, thousand nine hundred years. I am only talking about one inch of electrons. They they are so tiny. How about uh, nineteen thousand years? Hundred and ninety thousand years. One million nine hundred thousand years? We're talking about counting at four per second. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty-four, fifty-six, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. That's that. Three hundred and sixty-five days a year, twenty-four hours a day for nineteen million years, just to count one inch of electrons side by side. Now, I want to, I want you to get this picture because it's just so absolutely beyond anything you can imagine. Now, he said, knowing this, they wanted to find out what the probabilities were with forty-eight prophecies. It came down to 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now that means 157 zeros after it. He said, now let me try to bring this to where you can grasp this now. He says, let's take the, the earth and say that the earth, now remember, it takes 19 million years just to count one inch of electrons. He says, let's take a ball the size of the earth and make it solid electrons. Okay, I want you to get this picture now. <laughs> Here's the Earth. Solid electrons. Then he said, once you get that, start moving out and expand that circle out, 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 100 miles, 1,000 miles. I mean, how much? The Earth is 25,000 miles around, isn't it? Well, just keep on expanding that ball out 38 trillion miles further. Solid electron. Mark one electron in that ball. Still not done, though. He said, multiply this by trillions. Have a trillion balls 
the size trillions of miles wide. All solid electrons. Mark one of them, send a man off into space, a blind man off into space to fly around all those trillions of balls, have him land in it, reach out, and somehow pick up that one, one electron that's marked. I don't know about you, but my mind goes tilt, will not compute. He said this, ladies and gentlemen, is equivalent to the possibility of 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one man's lifetime as it was concerning Jesus Christ. When I read that, I bowed my head and I almost wept before God. I said, God, we are so lacking in understanding the magnitude of your majesty. You know, scientists tell you if you have 1 in 10 to the 50th power, virtually, cosmically, and naturally, and every other way, it's, it's a total impossibility. And yet the Word of God is settled forever in the heavens. The Word of God is supernatural. There's no other book on the face of the earth that can even come close to it. 333 prophecies, 456 specific things concerning it. And yet I'm shocked when I realize that the church of Jesus Christ is becoming less and less believers every day in the United States. I mean, churches are closing down on Wednesday night, closing down on Sunday nights, aren't too interested in going to church unless you can set a time when it's convenient for them to go to church. And they had a recent study in the National and International Religion Report concerning Americans who agree that the Bible is totally accurate. In 1991, 47% of the evangelicals in the United States, excuse me, Americans in the United States, thought that the Bible was totally accurate. Today, in just four years, it's down to 30, what was it, 38% by 1994. People believing that the Bible is totally accurate has dropped by 9% in three years. If that keeps on very long, we're going to be in a totally atheistic, godless, unbelieving nation. George Barna made this survey, and he found out in 1992, 12% of the American people were evangelical. In 1993, 9% professed to be evangelicals. In 1994, 7% of Americans professed to be evangelical. I'm here to tell you, we can trust the Word of God implicitly. Whatever it says is absolutely accurate. It's an amazing book. 30, 66 books from 40 authors written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic over a period of 60 centuries and yet one thing. Now you think about that. What if we were to go out tomorrow around the world and find 40 artists don't know each other at all. Come from different types of civilizations and different types of educational backgrounds. And we tell them we're, there's going to be a major art project and we want you to have part in it. Well, fine, what part do you want to have? Well, we don't know because we don't know what the art is going to be. We just want you to paint a painting that, will, that you think will be just like to fit into that whole painting. Well, what's the theme of painting? We don't know what the theme of painting is. I, all you have to do is just paint whatever you feel. And you let them all paint wherever they are in their own place, paint just a, a square of what they feel should fit in this whole picture, and then bring it all together and put it all up. What do you think you'd have? 
Or 40 sculptures. Yeah. 40 sculptures. 40 sculptures say, you're all going to have part in this great sculpting project. And, and, well, what are we sculpting? We don't know. You just, just whatever your imagination tells you. I mean, just do it. And you will bring it back and we'll just put it together. Can you imagine the confusion? And yet, in the Word of God, 66 books, 40 authors, over a period of thousands of years, 60 centuries, absolutely accurate, one theme, non-contradictory, never has to be replaced, one confirming, the other continuously. It's a miraculous book. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The word of God, Psalm tells us in Psalm 12, 6, is like silver seven times refined. And if you and I reject the word of God as the authoritative source for life and happiness, and we allow our reason and our intellect to become our God, the end is exactly what the scripture says it'll be. It'll be a disaster total confusion and destruction. Your ways are not my ways, God said. Your thoughts, my thoughts are so far above your thoughts and my ways are so far above your ways. That's why you and I have to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean to our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge His Word. He promises He will direct our path. I don't know about you, but this ought to make every saint I know shout from the highest hilltop, a mountaintop, God's word is true. Whenever you pick up this book, there ought to be an awe. There have been other computer studies, by the way, of the word of God, and they, they put it in and had it numerically examined, and the numerics of it, are they say, are miraculous. There's a rhythm through every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that is totally consistent, even though it's written by 40 authors. Numerically, it's totally consistent. Supernatural book. I don't care what your problem may be in your life tonight. I've got more to say next Sunday concerning the Word of God, but whatever the problem may be in your life, this book has the only answer to it. There's not another book like it in the world. You can read all the books you want to, but this is the book. The only book that changes lives. This is the only book that will give man peace and happiness when they put their trust totally in the Word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Why? Because the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and light in our path. The entrance of the Word gives light to where we can walk in the light as He is in the light and have fellowship one with another. I'll tell you something. If it's this authoritative, there isn't an area of your life or mine but what it's going to be authoritative, and we will have to answer to God for it. And if we say, I didn't understand that, he'll say it's an open book test. I left this for you, and I left this love letter for you to read and to understand and comprehend and to hide it away in your heart. If you hide the word of God away in your heart out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. Whatever you're full of, that's what you'll talk about. And we need to fill ourselves with this word, this precious word of God. It can transform any life. Pat and I were talking about the fact of people that we've known down through the years who at one time were going to church all the time and active and involved in the church, and they've gotten away, and you look at their children, their children don't go to church, their grandchildren are getting into more trouble. We were at a home this week, and 
and the great-grandmother was coming around showing us all of her illegitimate great-grandchildren and grandchildren and like look at my wonderful grandchildren here and I thought this woman has been in church all of her life as she has not walked it she has not been consistent she has not done what the word of God says and there's nothing but horrible disaster since then generation after generation you know the truth the truth will set you free and this is truth thy word is truth 